Well, good morning, everyone. It is, um, it is great to look out and see you all. And, uh, and to you that are on camera watching, welcome. Um, it's just good to be in the presence of the Lord and worshipping him in fellowship, isn't it? There's something very special about gathering and praising God together. Um, as part of the whole restriction starting to lift here, lots of our small groups have started to gather now, including the, the prayer meeting that meets on a Monday night here. And uh, we, had, we had a beautiful time. On Monday night we had a, um, a healing, uh, somebody with back pain that was beautiful. And we waited upon the Lord. We just asked God, you know, how do we pray into this season, this time? And I wanted to just briefly share some of the things because there was lots of things in common. There was um, that theme of darkness in the world, but God is the light. Um, a theme of shaking this world, but God's love and peace is always upon us. Uh, the scripture was read, Isaiah 54.10, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That's our God. That is our God at this time. And there were some instructions that came through as well, simple instructions. People need us to minister God's love and peace. Be prepared. Be ready. Watch. Listen. Wake up. We've been in an enforced sleep, really, haven't we, in that lockdown time. But now it's time to wake up and fan into flame the gifts God has given us. So I just wanted to share that with you. That um, We're always praying for the church when we gather and the region. And that's how we prayed for all of us on Monday night and something for us to be aware of too. Well, this morning's passage takes us to a very well-known passage often preached at weddings. Um, John and I have been married in October for 38 years. But I remember our wedding. You know, we, we had a joyful time. Aren't weddings just a happy time as we look forward to a new um, marriage, a new life together for the, for the couple? Well, John and I are part of the generation that resulted in confetti being banned. <laughs> One of the pranks that got played at our wedding was that some bright spark put a whole box of confetti into the air conditioning system of our car. So the first time we drove our car and turned on the fan, woof, confetti everywhere. Do you know how hard confetti is to clean up? Anyway, two years later, the person responsible for that got married. And so another prank got played, but this time it was confetti in the air conditioning system of their house, the central air conditioning system of their house. Um, best to say they weren't very happy. <laughs> but weddings are meant to be joyful occasions, aren't they? They are also the beginning of something very special in God's eyes. And as we come to um, look at this passage where Paul teaches us about marriage, we're going to start by recapping last week's 
uh, the end of last week's message. So Ephesians 5, 18 to 21, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul writes this one Greek sentence with interlinking parts. Being filled with the Spirit results in a life of singing and joy and thanksgiving and in submitting to one another. It comes from the fullness of the Spirit. That word there, reverence for Christ, out of reverence for Christ, can be translated fear, the fear of Christ. We read in the Old Testament of the fear of the Lord, fear of God. And it's that same word, Jesus, the Son of God, worthy of reverence, respect and love that results in obedience. So here Paul is saying one major effect of the fullness of the Spirit is submission to one another. This is a world-changing idea, yeah? Especially in the ancient world, which was so highly structured. There were categories and structures of society, and no matter where you knew, you knew who was above you, and you submitted to them completely. And here is Paul saying into that situation, submit to one another. Jesus taught it first. Jesus taught it first. One time when the disciples were arguing about who was in charge if Jesus wasn't around, Jesus called them together. And he said this, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew that what the world most needs is the love and respect that is due to every person. That requires us to submit to, to them, one to another, to serve them, to be a slave to them, to give our lives up for them. If we all lived that way, like the song we sang today, we're the hope of the world. Who else gives respect and worth to every life? That's what God requires of us. So this word submit in our society tends to have a negative connotation, doesn't it? But if you think about it, we submit to lots of different places. Celebrities get followed and idolised and their fads and their fashions get taken up, as well as our governing authorities, the police and so forth. And submitting is not a particularly uh, popular idea. But I think of that word submit in this way. When you submit a report, or a proposal or an idea to somebody who's in authority over you, you expect them to read it 
And then usually there's a working out in partnership or in team. It's not a bad thing to do, to submit yourself or your report to someone with some different ideas and some better ideas or more experience in that matter. So submission is part of teamwork and unity. This is different to the idea of equality that says people are all the same because we're not all the same. We're all different. We're all individuals. We're unique with different gifts and abilities. But it is egalitarian that says under God we're all to be respected, valued and considered worthy. So from this place of submitting, which comes from the fullness of the Holy Spirit, Paul goes on to a set of teaching about relationships, and he starts with marriage. So let's read Ephesians 5, to 33. In our main passage for today, Paul weaves together the way a husband and wife love each other with the way that Jesus loves us. So as you hear this passage read, I'd like you to consider what it says about how Jesus loves us. So in English, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing and the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So we're all at different places when it comes to marriage. Some have chosen to be single. Some have been made single by widowhood or uh, divorce. Um, and some are in relationship considering marriage. But we are all believers and followers of Jesus. How does he love us? This passage talks about that. So verse 23 tells us that Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. When a person's muscles don't obey the thoughts in their brain, that's called a disorder, muscular dystrophy. We need our brains and our thought patterns to be able to tra be transmitted well to our muscles in order for us to be healthy and move and grow well. So too, Christ is the head of the church. For those churches that prioritise 
um, their own traditions and laws and the way to do life, but separate themselves from the heart and mind of Christ, they'll run into trouble. But those churches that are listening to Jesus, hearing from him and obeying what he says, those are the churches that will grow and be healthy. But Jesus in this passage also calls the church his body, his body. Verse 25 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're talking about a submission that we clearly see Jesus also giving. So Jesus, when he was on the earth, he submitted to the needs of the people around him. He gave up his life for them. So when the leper came to him and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus doesn't say to this contagious person with an awful disease, he doesn't say, I'm, I'm willing, be cleaned. He says, he touches him. He says, I am willing, be clean. And he was healed. When the uh, disciples needed to go away on retreat and Jesus chose a wilderness area, the crowd got wind of it and knew where they were going. And by the time they landed in the boat at that place, there was a huge crowd gathered. Jesus didn't say to them, look, I've got another agenda for today and get back in the boat. He came out and he fed them through the day with his teaching and his healing because he had compassion on them. And then in the evening, he fed them as well. 5,000 men from two, loaves, uh, two fish and five loaves. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Father, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he gave up his life for us. Jesus, as always, is our role model and the one that we follow. So in giving up his life, this is what happened. Jesus gave himself up for us, the church, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And Paul goes on to say that as members of Jesus' own body, he gives himself to us still. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his, of his body. What a beautiful picture of who we are. The safety, the assurance that we have. We are part of Jesus' own body. He continues to feed and care for us, even today, and he's presenting us to God without wrinkle, a radiant church. That is what Jesus is doing. And then finally, Paul quotes the definition of marriage from Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning of the Bible, which Paul says contains a mysterious truth. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, he says. But I am talking about Jesus and the church. We are called 
into a relationship with Jesus that is oneness, oneness with him. We are never alone. Jesus will never leave us on our own, but he continues to walk with us and be with us. So from there, Paul is making the case for marriage, for what marriage truly is. First of all, women, wives, submit to your husbands. Just as we are all commanded to submit one to another, wives, submit to your husbands in everything, it says, in everything. Just as Jesus is the head and that flows through the body, so too a husband should be a head and that flows on in the marriage. But then to husbands, the command is given, give up your life as Jesus gave up his life. So Paul ends this way, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. So how do we put this into practice? How do two people, with all their differences, their individuality, become not two, but one? We live in a world that's deeply impacted by divorce and breakdown of families. We know the pain of that. Either we've walked through it ourselves, or we've supported somebody else as they go through that. Wherever we are with that, the key is always returning to Jesus, returning to Jesus to know his love, to be filled by his spirit, and look to the future where we demonstrate our love for Jesus by being in obedience to him. At weddings, people often use some version of the traditional vows. In the name of God, I take you to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, to love and to cherish until death parts us. So help me God. I really like these vows. First of all, there's an admission that we can't do it without God. We can't do it on our own. Second, there's the talk of human need. We need close relationships. We need a relationship to walk through life. And third, there is difficulty as well as blessing in every life. Richer, poorer, better, worse, sickness or in health. So how do we as Christians live out what we've just been reading about? We know the love of Jesus. We receive his Holy Spirit and be filled with him. And we learn how to submit and to give ourselves up for one another. Although we've been married for nearly 38 years, I can say we don't have a perfect marriage. John and I are two imperfect people and we've done lots of living together. I have to say that um, our life has been blessed because we've walked through the good times and the bad times together. So to give you some idea how our marriage puts these principles into practice, I discussed this part of my message with John for his perspective. I must admit to you that I don't always submit to my husband. I believe in this teaching about the ideal marriage 
but I'm all, not always perfect in living it out. Sometimes I don't submit every decision to John because I know he's delegated a particular area of our lives to me, things like the household budget, the me menu plan, the clothes that I buy. But uh, major expenditures are always discussed, not so the minor ones. In the same way, major life decisions are talked about, but not the minor ones. So when I asked John if I submitted to him in everything, he took a while to respond. <laughs> I fully expected him to say no, but then he said, well, yes, because you fully support everything I want to do. He said, but I only do what is good for all of us and that won't cause us any problems. So do you see there how on the one hand I submit to what he wants to do, on the other hand he is careful not to uh, do things that are going to be bad for our marriage or our family. How has John given himself up for me and the family? Before we married and had children, John had a more expensive car and a motorbike played a lot of sport, he had several different social groups and he lived in Mount Gambier. Once we were engaged, we moved to Adelaide uh, because I was still going to uni. And then especially after the children were born, he bought a family car, uh, spent less money on purely personal items, gradually played less sport and we formed a mutual social group. And all of this happened gradually through joint discussion and decision making. But what about conflict? What about when there's a difference of opinion? What about fights? So conflict is actually part of the process. You can't get through your married life without conflict. Why? Because you're different and you're going to rub up against each other the wrong way. Heated conflict has often been the time when God has convicted me that I should have submitted some decisions to John earlier for better communication or better planning. And John said that these are the times when we work out how to meet each other halfway. In our early years, our pattern of conflict started as different opinions and then evolved into hurtful comments. At that point, we stopped, retreated, reconsidered and then talked again. I learned uh, two things from these fights. The first one is a fight never changed anything. It never changed anything. If change was required, there's no point fighting about it. It needs a conversation where we both listen well and usually work out a compromise, that meeting each other halfway. The second thing I learned is that fights always meant saying or doing hurtful things. It makes a break in the relationship, a break that requires reconciliation. The most important advice I ever read in those early years was this one. Whoever says sorry first wins. You see, if there's a breakdown in communication, if there's a break in your relationship, there's a requirement for reconciliation that is owning up to where you're at fault. And it's saying sorry. Sorry I caused you pain. Sorry I said those words. Sorry I didn't ask you first. Whatever it is, you need to mean it 
and you need to do it soon. Saying sorry in a marriage is a win-win situation. The most important advice that John has learned over the years. <laughs> he said this, look at your life from your partner's point of view. I, I thought that was particularly insightful. If you want to know how your partner is feeling and how, where they're coming from, look at yourself from the mirror that they're, they're showing to you. Do you like what you see in the mirror? Is there something you need to change in yourself before you go and you uh, resolve that conflict? Then he also said, material possessions mean nothing without family happiness. One of the things he had seen, does see, often in his workplace is people who devote themselves to wealth and career advancement and then their marriage and family is falling apart around them. So family happiness first, uh, material possessions perhaps second. So we've had our share of sorrows and hardship along the way, but the key to being married for 38 years has been submitting to one another, to one another, out of reverence for Christ. So, husbands and wives, I actually have some homework for you. I found this preparation so helpful because I talked with John. And there are three questions I would like you to ask as conversation starters for each other. The first is, wives, be brave. Do I submit to you in everything? See what your husband says. And husbands, do I give myself up for you? So wait until you're obviously not heightened tensions in the home, but when you can sit down and talk about such things. The second question, do I fight fair? What I'd like to say to you, in all honesty from the from the stage up here, I know you fight. I know you do. It's part of marriage. But the key to staying married and not letting our fights divide us is fighting fair. It's about getting angry but not sinning against one another. It is refraining from those hurtful comments and dredging up the past. It's about Engaging, however passionately, about what the difference is, but without hurting one another. So, third question. You might be surprised. Ask your partner, what is your best advice on marriage? Ask them, what have they learned through your marriage? You know, as, as people who love others, who are reaching out to those that don't know the Lord, one of the models we can have for them is a good marriage. And if we have a good marriage, how would we articulate that to someone who says their marriage is in trouble? You know, what advice would we give from our own experience? Um, how would we express this whole thing about meeting each other halfway, submitting to one another and giving ourselves up for one another? And for those of you that are not married, uh, or perhaps have a marriage in, in trouble right now. Those of you that have gone through some hurts, uh, divorce, being alone and not wanting to be alone, can I say we're a praying church. We're a praying church. Find somebody that you trust 
and pray about those things. And if, you, um, if you're brave enough as a, as a younger or newer married couple, why don't you ask an older or more experienced married couple if you could ask them some questions or um, trust them to pray for you in your marriage. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, <laughs> that you raised the bar so high. And thank you that you don't leave us on our own to do the things that you ask us to do. Thank you for that precious, precious promise and truth that submitting to one another comes out of the overflow of your Holy Spirit. You, Lord God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, who know what it means, to work as one. Lord, I pray for us as a people. Pray for us as marriages. Lord, that you would enter into our marriage in a new way, speaking to us about the things that need to be uh, looked at, the things that need to be addressed, but also reminding us of the many blessings that you've given to us in our marriage partners. And Lord, for those that are hurting, that have... Um, Divorce in their past or widowhood, Lord God, such grief and pain. I pray right now that your healing hand would be upon those that hurt still. Reminding them, Lord, that all sin is forgiven. That the past is something that is behind us in Christ. And that you lead us forward into a new day and into a new life every day by your love, by our oneness with you and the power of your Holy Spirit in and through us. Hallelujah. Amen.